You're listening to John Anderson Direct with Victor Davis Hansen. Please note that John Anderson Direct is recorded live via online streaming, which means that sometimes the audio quality is less than optimum. Professor Hansen is the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow in Classics and Military History at the Hoover Institution at Stanford in California. He's one of America's most published and respected public intellectuals. He's written dozens of books on warfare and classical history, and his latest books are a history of World War II and also an account of Donald Trump's coming to power. Victor, thank you very much for joining us from rural California. Yeah, all the way from California. To northwest New South Wales. Thank you. Can I ask uh, to open the batting, so to speak, In world history terms, are we now at some sort of major tipping point going through a traditional period when an old order is being being replaced by a new one, in your view? Well, the old order, I think, has been replaced. It's it's analogous to the post-war decolonization of the British Empire and the, the emergence of a new engaged America. But this is, I think, a little bit more dangerous because we were embracing globalization, and I think people very naively thought that everybody was on board with the Western paradigm of consumer capitalism, transparency, individual rights, constitutional government, respect for minority opinion, tolerance, and diversity of religions. And that's and that did not prove true. And one of the catalysts that was this COVID. Um, Contagion, because we learned very quickly that China was neither transparent or sincere, and many of the world international organizations have been warped by Chinese influence. And then we learned that getting from San Francisco to Shanghai in 16 hours, which we had praised for 20 years, was maybe not such a good thing, because the virus was leaving Wuhan on direct flights to San Francisco and Los Angeles at a time when the Chinese government was forbidding flights from Wuhan to domestic destinations. So the virus reminded us that it's very hard to globalize along this, the assumptions and presumptions that we thought would happen under globalization. Some of us were very skeptical, but we were drowned out. And I think now, I think we don't know what's ahead of us. And, and um, so we're in a circling pattern, a period of uncertainty, but I don't think there's many advocates of unchecked globalization in the United States at least. I'm sure that's true everywhere. Uh, Some of the work that the Henry Jackson Society in Britain has done on the dependence of the Five Eyes nations, which of course are Britain, America, New Zealand, Canada and Australia, and their dependency upon Chinese uh, manufacturers and materials and what have you uh, for their supply chains is really deeply concerning. It's going to be very, very difficult to unwind that dependency without shooting ourselves in the foot, it seems to me. Even in the case of Australia, where uh, Australian farmers, you're a farmer, I'm a farmer, um, Australia exports a higher percentage of its food production than any other country in the world because we have such a small domestic population. Uh, We would appear to be as self-sufficient as any nation in the world in terms of food production, and yet we're not. We're dependent on certain key chemicals and so forth now from China. Same to... Even to a greater degree, there's the same apprehension. We keep talking about 
returning industries to the United States, especially protective equipment, medical supplies, pharmaceuticals, strategic materials, military applied technologies. But what we're learning is that our education system has been in decline and the so-called STEM graduates or the people necessary to ensure us not the not the original research, but the next level of operational research. We don't have enough graduates, and we're not competitive yet unless we, you know, in, re-engineer our universities. And it's going to be. And a lot of our corporate magnates feel that they want to move back, but they're going to lose capital, they're going to lose bank accounts, and it's making it very hard to do so. And one of the problems we're having in the Western world is with the rise of progressive government and its emphasis on race, class, gender issues, the Chinese are much more brilliant in terms of propaganda than we are. So by any measure of classical liberality, the Chinese are very reactionary. They have a million, as you know, people, the Uyghurs in concentration camps, if I could use that term, re-education camp. They've silenced democracy, extinguished it in Hong Kong. They've destroyed indigenous culture in Tibet. In terms of mercantilism, they're an international trade outlaw. They bullied their neighbors, and I think we're going to learn that either out of laxity or worse, they're responsible for a half million deaths from COVID. And yet, and yet, when this crisis arose, when we had a travel ban, they were very effective in suggesting that we were racist. This is a very undiverse society saying that we are racist. And every time that we try to make a concerted effort, to push back, they use that left wing, you're racist, you're insensitive, it's the yellow peril again. And they've really infiltrated the United States entertainment industry, Hollywood, and even the NBA. The NBA is very vocal in their criticism of uh, supposed social activism and things in the United States. And yet, when China crushed Hong Kong, they, they pretty much silenced all of their players in fears they would endanger that $6 billion and growing NBA market in China. So they're a very insidious rival. And I don't think yet we have any imagination of their potential and their capability in terms of propaganda and messaging. That's a very chilling perspective. To come to the question of education, two comments. Firstly, in relation to the STEM subjects, as an Australian looking at America, we still see this remarkable capacity for innovation uh, you know, you still dominate the patent markets, uh, 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 applications and, and what have you. The impression you have is that in those STEM subjects, America is still very strong. You're saying, that, though, that there's been a shortage of graduates in that area, that you haven't got the people you need to, to keep the technology edge. I, I think what I was trying to say is that when we look at the quality of engineers that are being trained at Caltech, Stanford, MIT, they're the best in the world. But the next tier of people who translate abstraction into operational efficacy, we have about 70% are foreign students are necessary or because we just, we've had a radical readjustment the last 50 years in higher education. And we're not, a lot of our most talented people, unfortunately, have been going into Wall Street, finance and law and to a lesser degree in the humanities. And we haven't, we haven't, for the ambitious programs we have and for the sophisticated innovation that we develop, we're not utilizing it in a way that's self-interested because we're so dependent. And so when we say we want to become autonomous from China, a lot of our 
more informed scholars. I know that if I write something like that in an op-ed, I get a call from a very distinguished person off the record and says, Victor, we don't have, or we only have 20%, 30% of the PhDs in electrical engineering or, you know, nanotechnology that we need. And we're very dependent on foreign students. And we've got to be very careful that we, this divorce is done in such a way that we're not punished in the short term. So it's something that I think we're all aware of. And um, it's kind of frightening how China does not, is not competitive with the Western world in absolute, in pure research, but it is more than competitive in translating that pure research into viable products and uh, innovative designs of consumer products. And it, part of it is, it's not just that they're renegades and they don't follow Pinnock, uh, patent and copyright law, but they have the fusion of the government, the private sector to the degree that we can call it a private sector, and then the whole machinery of government. And uh, they understand American politics, I think, much better than Americans do sometimes. And that's, that's very frightening. So, uh, and the other side, the second question on, on education, it seems to me, is the non-STEM areas, the humanities, if you like. It seems to me that right across the West, for 50, 60 years at least now, uh, there's been this relentless attack on the institutions uh, of our own freedom, uh, this undermining and reinterpretation of our history that has left people actually in a, in a state of self-loathing of Western culture, and part of that has been an incredible naivety, I would put it to you, about what communism has actually visited on the world whenever it's been uh, trialed. Yeah. Well, that's a very good point. You know, in the ancient world, uh, people from Thucydides to Plato to Aristotle and in the Roman world, some of the nihilists like Suetonius or Petronius, and even in the, and then our critics in the German world, Nietzsche and Hegel and whatnot, they spotted these two characteristics of Western consensual government and market capitalism, that it creates so much wealth and it's so efficient in providing material bounty for its citizens. And yet it also pro protects individual expression that if we're not careful and we don't have the breaks, so to speak, or the bridles of family, religion, tradition, community, then we can be, you know, we can we can become decadent and we give in to excess. And part of the problem in the crisis of the post-war Western world is, in the English-speaking world in particular, but also in Europe, we were very affluent, we were very leisured, and we pushed the boundaries of of freedom without any uh, historical reminders that we were destroying the community the religion, the traditions that said, yes, that's free, and, and you're, you're legally free to do that, but I wouldn't say that, or I wouldn't do that because it's injurious to the body politic. And so that was something that it's plagued Western civilization for a long time since its beginning, that, that irony. And then we, in the West, with the decolonization movement and the United States' radical change in immigration, we brought in people throughout Europe and the former British Commonwealth and in your country and in our country that we felt uh, we were going, because we're the only civilization, the Western paradigm is the only civilization that says we're about ideas. We're not about blood and soil. Anybody can come to Australia and if they embrace Australianism 
in Western tradition. There is there is Australian, if, even if they're from China or from Africa as an Australian. We have the same concept. Unfortunately, that is a very fragile concept, and it depends on the host having confidence in its own values and saying, you came here, you voted with your feet. It's our duty to instruct you, to assimilate you, to integrate you, and to embrace our culture. It doesn't mean that we say in the West, oh, we don't want your food, we don't want your music, we don't want your fashion, we don't want your family. We say that can all tr uh, enrich our core values, but we're not going to change constitutional government, free speech, and the whole the whole paradigm. And unfortunately, with people coming so rapidly and in such numbers to enjoy the bounty of the Western paradigm, and then we had this cynical elite that we just talked about, we didn't prepare people to acculturate. And, there, and then we, it was worse than that. We said that equality, not freedom, is our only value, and it's a quality of results. So if you're not equal, when you get to Australia, let's say from the Philippines or China or South America, or you're not equal when you come up from Oaxaca, Mexico to California, then we're culpable because we did something wrong because you're, you have less money. Or, and the old paradigm was it would take, this was a very ambitious project. It might take two or three generations and we, were, we weren't going to condemn the host because they didn't provide instant parity. But it's, we're in revolutionary times now because we're not assimilating and integrating our immigrants and our elite is completely intellectually and morally suspect. Yeah, I, I sympathize entirely with your views. I find them very, very concerning. Um, can I pose to you that just perhaps China's handling of COVID-19 and the extraordinary, I know I agree with you when you say that they are, they probably understand our democratic systems better than us, goodness only knows how and where they've been in, in, you know, peddling influence uh, and we've been very conscious of that now in Australia. Nonetheless, I would say the way they've handled COVID-19 and the bellicose reaction that we've had from them on issues such as a proper inquiry into COVID-19, do you think that may yet serve as a, as, as a, a massive wake-up call? And if so, is it in time? Can we turn this around? That, that's a very good question, and I, it's something that I read deeply about and, and try to think and talk to people where I work. And, and I, I would say it's ambiguous. I think you're absolutely right that Trump is no longer in the United States a voice in the wilderness about warning about China. Everybody is now trying to outdo each other in concern and worry about China. And uh, we've, we've kind of broken through the Chinese taboo. We now can say what you're doing with the Uyghurs is wrong and what you're doing to Hong Kong is wrong, whereas before corporate and university interest in a very strange symbiosis, silence. I know as a pop, an op-ed columnist, when I wrote critically of China, I would get a call from the consul in San Francisco with the problem. And so, and that's good. And I agree with you. But I think we're in a second, very critical phase now, because I think if I should be so bold to imagine the Chinese response, it was something like this. Oh, my gosh. This virus has ruined our brand. It's united our enemies. It's woken up the Western world to what we were planning to do. And now we've got indigenous people within our system that are angry. We've got Japan, South Korea, Australia, Philippines, our neighbors. We've got the, you know, and that's good. But I think now they're becoming a little bit more Machiavelli. And I, from what I'm reading about China, it's more, if I could put words into their mouth, is, yeah, we screwed up. And the virus went out 
and maybe our narrative that came from the wet market wasn't quite right and it came actually from the Wuhan lab and maybe or maybe not it was an engineered not for a weapon maybe but maybe for a vaccination but we don't really care so what we screwed up and now what are you going to do about it in fact what are you going to do about it? because wink and not it can happen again and if a virus can shut down the entire western world and with a quarantine that's never happened under any other plague ruin the economy cause the biggest power in the history of civilization to fall on its knees in internal divisiveness, the United States, that's something that we should consider because it achieved far more goals, even though it was nihilistic or accidental, than anything we had done in the past with our propaganda. And now we've got a deterrent proposition that anytime the United States or the West tends to galvanize against us, we can have some dissident general on spec, say, you know what, there might be a, a virus loose in uh, a province of, of China. So I think it's pretty scary because I think now, after their their own initial uh, apologies, if I could say, it wasn't much of an apology, but their defensiveness has now been transmogrified into a new assertiveness. And they're starting to realize that they're not going to be apologetic at all. And they're going to be more on demand because they feel they found a weakness in the entire social, cultural, uh, and political matrix of the West that they had no idea uh, about. And this virus has really exposed it, I think. Uh, how would you, um, uh, in that context, what you say is very chilling, uh, respond to those who would say, well, China still needs the West. Uh, they can't produce semiconductors. Uh, they can't uh, prosper without trade. I suppose all you know. It still depends on us having the willpower in the West to pull ourselves together, doesn't it? And that's what's perhaps the biggest question of all: Can we reinstitute belief in ourselves? And that's where the Black Lives Matter protests come into it. The deep self-loathing of our culture seems to me to be almost impossible to turn around now. It's very difficult because just as just this in the last 48 hours in the United States, we've had a moderate writer for the New York Times resign and suggest that the climate there was so anti-Semitic and divisive and censorious that she couldn't even write anymore. We've had a number of prominent black entertainers voice uh, uh, Nick Cannon, who's an entertainment host, voice some anti-Semitic racist things that I, I I mean, that you can't even imagine. But but then he basically said, I'm African-American. I can do what I want. I'm not going to apologize. So there's a new assertiveness there. And, and I think what people are saying in the United States, we've, we've now transcended from we want equality and we want proportional representation. And if we don't have proportional representation, we call it disparate impact. There has to be an implicit bias somewhere or we would have the same number. We being people of color would have the same number of brain surgeons at Stanford as, as others. But we've gone beyond that now. And what I think people make a mistake, they think that Black Lives Matter is a sophisticated Marxist organization. They're not interested in class. They believe that Oprah or LeBron James is just a much a victim as somebody in the inner city. It's a racial, and it's a racial movement, and its ambitions transcend black nationalism of the 1960s. It's saying 
that 30% of the United States is going to go by the one drop rule of the old Confederacy. We're not white and therefore we're superior and we're, we, we don't share in this legacy of racism, slavery, oppression, that people who are white. It's absurd. Somebody could come from any country and we don't know what their pigmentation is. We don't know what their DNA is. We don't care. But I think we have to be very careful because this is not a liberal movement. This is not a Marxist movement drawing on uh, the traditions of the, even the Soviet Union. This is a weird racial angry movement. And it's deep down, it's, it has an element of racist, racism in it that's getting more and more pronounced. And you can see the reaction of uh, the uh, progressive white liberal class in the United States. They feel that the crocodile is going to eat them last, but it's going to eat them. And they're trying to appease it. Uh, they just fired the head of the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, a very distinguished art historian, for the crime of saying, I'm not going to forbid white artists from being uh, displayed their work because I don't believe in reverse discrimination. They fired him. And when you take Teddy Roosevelt statue down from the Museum of Natural History, the pressure is there. And what it requires is all of us here in the United States and indeed the Western world, because something analogous is happening everywhere, especially in the English speaking world, is we have to say, no, we're, we're not ashamed of our traditions. You don't have to be uh, perfect. You don't have to be perfect to be good. We don't measure somebody by their bad characteristics alone. We, we measure them up by the great good they did. And millions of people own slaves, but millions of them were not like Thomas Jefferson, that were aware of the complexities and the immoral issues involved. But we're not getting enough of those voices because right now they feel that, that there's a nexus between corporations with money that depend on emerging markets and the universities. And they've, they've just in the case of China, so in the case of Black Lives Matter and this cultural revolution, they have been welded together. This is a, it's, a, it's a very ugly phase indeed. It seems to me that one of the great problems you've got uh, is indeed, as you say, it's a, it is actually in itself the re-emergence of racism. It's a racism that says whites are morally inferior and culpable for ills all over the place. And yet there must be many, many middle African Americans who are themselves deeply disturbed by this. I mean, there are many, many, you know, wonderful, gracious, and frankly, middle-class African-Americans now for whom America has not been such a terrible place. Uh, as I understand it, when Martin Luther King was active, only around 30% of African-Americans were middle-class on middle-class incomes. It is now close to 60%. No one denies that there are problems because all human beings are subject occasionally to being racist. There's no doubt about that. It flows every which way. I was a member of parliament for many years. I saw racism directed against whites, but I saw racism directed against minority groups by other minority groups. It's, it's an ugly aspect of human nature that we ought to seek to correct, but you don't correct it with hatred and you don't correct it surely with denying, in this case, uh, some actual facts that in many ways there must be many African-Americans for whom America's been a land of hope despite what has happened to their, might have happened to their forebears. I, I think there has. Some of the most eloquent critics 
of the Black Lives Movement and this new racism have been Shelby Steele and Tom Soule, colleagues of mine at the Hoover Institution, as well as uh, Senator Scott and uh, John McWhorter. We have, and then the middle class as well. And I think what's happening though is for a lot of the African-American middle class, they don't know which way this is gonna end up. They don't know whether black lives will ultimately be successful and, and push this agenda down America's throat and then they'll be punished. And so they're like in some ways the white middle class. They're, they have their finger in the proverbial error just as the mob during the reign of terror in 1793 and they don't know whether Robespierre is going to guillotine all of them or he's going to get guillotined himself. So there's a waiting period, but they are privately, I think most African-American. And I live in an area that's about 90% Mexican-American. I can tell you that the vast majority of Mexican-American people are appalled by this. And so the, the left says that there's a monolithic white and non-white population. And they say that because by the 1960s and 70s, their agendas of larger, larger government, less, less individual freedom, more and more spending, more and more therapeutic growth was not working. And there was the Reagan revolution. And so they, they again saw that they needed new demography and new messaging to reconstitute the demography of the United States, both through illegal immigration and through new, uh, anti-Martin Luther King messaging, not integration, not intermarriage, not assimilation, but separatism. And we as the white liberal patriarchs will mentor you into our political movement. And I think a lot of people don't like that and they're, they're starting to rebel. The problem is that in the Republican Party, the official uh, political uh, organization in this country that supposedly espouses and protects conservative traditional thought, they were not sensitive to these issues. So they traditionally, John McCain, uh, Mitt Romney, supposedly are most progressive. They only got eight to 10% of the African-American vote. If any major candidate were to get 15% of the African-American vote, that would mean that the entire progressive project blows up under our electoral system. That means that a Democrat could not get enough votes in Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, uh, Detroit, and um, Columbus, Ohio, to balance the conservative surge in the rural parts and would lose those states. And Donald Trump achieved the inexplicable when he broke that blue wall because he got about 10% of the black vote and he got a, a huge I guess we would call it Reagan Democrat, Ross Perot, populist nationalist vote. But if there was a poll yesterday that said that he had 15% of the black vote, and that would suggest that defunding the police and dismantling the police, the wages of that insane policy fall most heavily, as we're seeing from these epidemic of shootings in places like Chicago and New York on the inner city. And once people realize that, what they say to their leaders and their community organizers and what they do in the ballot box could be a different thing. And if you were to get 15%, as this poll suggested, that would be a watershed event. But a lot of what we're talking about, in the, at least as far as this country, and maybe indeed the world, the subtext is the 220 election. So how you interpret the contagion, how what your views are on the quarantine, 
what your views are on the violence. It's all predicated on to what degree does that impair the re-election possibilities of Donald Trump. I, I know that's a reduction statement, but I can tell you that talking to people on both sides, that's where we are now. And the last, this next hundred days are going to be something that we've never seen before. Yeah. I can quite believe that, and I'd love to come to that in a moment. Can I ask you a couple of questions first? Um, presumably, it's not just intellectual elites and uh, you know uh, newspaper editors and so forth who are at the forefront of backing this movement in many ways. There must be serious money, and no doubt some of that comes from seriously wealthy white elites, does it? It does. That's one of the strangest things. I think that's happened throughout the Western world. It's. I know I've followed Australia and Europe, and it seems similar to the United States that much of the great money that was made in finance and high technology in our country, Silicon Valley, uh, is left-wing and progressive. And when you look at our Forbes list of 500 billionaires now, not millionaires, but billionaires, almost all of them are progressive. So the great moneyed institutions in the United States, Microsoft, the Bill Gates fortune, or the Warren Buffett fortune, or the Zuckerberg Facebook, or the Google fortune, or the Apple fortune, um, or the Mike Bloomberg media fortune, whatever fortune we look at, all of these people feel that they have done so well in the United States that their theories of utopia can now be imposed quite undemocratically on less woke people. And they feel that they're never going to be subject to the ramifications of their own ideology. So if they want in California open borders, then they have walls around their own home. If they want to stop irrigation transfers, not stopping drinking water transfers to the Bay Area. If they want very high power rates, they can afford it. They live in a pretty temperate climate on the Bay Area, in the Bay Area, but not others out in the desert or where I am. And so that's been a very dangerous thing in the West that in the old days, the, the so-called robber barons or the great 19th century magnets that built my country and your country, there was always a sense that the system allowed them to do that, that they were very gracious and they had some gratitude that freedom and a constitutional system and the protection of property and a tax code allowed them to be prosperous and thereby to lift everybody up with them. And then private philanthropy was something that religion and community and tradition urge them to give back. But I think what's happened now, that idea is completely gone. And this new progressive billionaire class feels that whether it's climate change or whether it's racial relations or whether it's high density, mass transit, congested living, that they have the answers and um, they're going to impose them on others. We got a glimpse of that, unfortunately, from Barack Obama, because in a series of statements that were quite astounding, he laid out a philosophy, incomplete though it was. He said, you know, it's time to share the wealth. He pointed at a person and said, now is not the time to profit. At some point, you've got to know when you've made enough money and don't need any more. And uh, you didn't build that most notoriously. You didn't build that business. The government did. And that ideology really sent investors into the shadows and in part, I think, psychologically explain our sort of static inert economy until 2017. But it also uh, reflected this new idea of these of these different billionaires. They're a very different group than what I remember the wealthy being uh, as a young person. And I see them very closely at Stanford University. If I write a column uh, that's critical of them, I, I will get a call from one of them. 
And if I ever meet one of them, and I do on occasion, what do you do with a guy with cutoffs and flip flops in a T-shirt? And he's worth five billion dollars. Yeah, it's an insidious. It's it's an it's a very bizarre social matrix, and I'm very worried about those guys. So you're a you know a great student and writer of classics. Uh, and and of history. Let's turn then to what, perhaps uh, what we might be able to learn from history. Uh, the earlier democracies failed. They ate themselves out from within Greece, Rome. Um, what can we learn uh, uh, from, from uh, that history? You know, democracy is not something that has a guaranteed survival. We thought it might have back when the Berlin Wall fell, uh, you know, the end of history and all the rest of it. But history, real history, shows us it's it's not secure. It needs to be nurtured. Are we in risk? At risk? In fact, are there those who have given up on democracy, or is it just that we need a wake up call? Well, it requires a great deal of investment to be an Athenian citizen or a citizen of ancient Thebes or a member of the Roman Republic. A great deal of uh, time and commitment. And traditionally, these democracies were associated with a viable middle class. And there's a chauvinism in Greek and Roman literature about the 10 acre farmer or the small business person. And the idea is that they were the complete citizen. They used their head, they used their muscles, they were responsible for their own defeat and failure, they were autonomous. And what they warned about is when you have great concentrations of money in a few hands, the aristocracy was not meritocratic, but based on birth, or you had a bread and circuses, one million people with no means of support by the second century in Rome, then you were not, you were not democratic. It wasn't going to work. You had too many people that wanted subsidies from the government, and they thought that the rich were going to pay, and the rich is their biggest uh, occupation, it seems like, from forensic speeches of the ancient world is how to hide their wealth. And uh, they were not, and how to indulge themselves, as we see in a lot of uh, Roman imperial literature. So what I'm worried about is that here in our country, we have middle-class kids with $1.7 trillion in aggregate student debt. Yeah. Except no moral hazard for issuing these loans as they jack up tuition above the rate of inflation. Until 2017, we hadn't had a rise in uh, middle-class wages in about 12 years. And uh, we had a static, we had unemployment about six to 7% for a number of years. And so if you don't have a viable middle class, then you're not going to have the core constituency for consensual government. And that what it turns into is the lower classes wanting subsidies from the government and the wealthy using their power and influence to get exemptions. And that's what's happened. I'm speaking in a state that was once a model for the United States, California in the 1970s on terms of freeways, housing, uh, reservoirs, recreation, power, power plants. It was by far the best state in the country. And we've lost about 10 million middle class people have fled and they have been replaced by enormous amounts of wealth in Silicon Valley and then enormous amounts of poverty. We have the highest poverty rate in the United States, 21%. One third of all welfare recipients live in California. We have a terrible homeless. So that California is a canary in the mine. What can happen? The other thing that comes to mind, you touched on it a moment ago, 
Uh, it was the French Revolution, which seemed to me to be the, uh, you know, an early example of just how ugly identity politics can ultimately be. Think of four great revolutions uh, over recent centuries, the French, the American, the Russian, and the Maoist revolution. Only one produced freedom. What can we learn? It seems to me that America's increasingly looking like, I think you might have made this comment yourself, it certainly looks to me, increasingly like, uh, like France before the revolution, which of course turned into a complete disaster, unlike the American revolution. This incredible emphasis on, there's the detachment of virtue from, um, from the classic understandings of virtue, if you like, and of right and of wrong uh, and what have you, and its realignment with people and causes. So you get into a situation where the world really is a battle between uh, good people and evil people. If you just get rid of the evil people, everything will be all right. It always seems to me to be a very dangerous mistake that conservatives don't make. They're the one group who understand human nature never changes. We're all a mixture of the good and noble and the poor scum. Uh, tendencies to want to do the wrong thing. But is America able to learn something from understanding its own origins and its own revolution versus the French model, or are they determined? Uh, are we reaching a point where we're going to replicate the terrible mistakes that, that threw France into a mess? That's the subtext of all of the discussions that we have every day in this country, whether they're on television or debates on talk radio or in the op-ed columns or in local and regional and state elections, that it's basically a two paradigms, the French Revolution, the Maoists, the Bolsheviks versus the American Revolution. And the code words throughout history are always the same. When you start to hear equality rather than freedom and liberty, and you hear internationalism, the Bolsheviks were always talking about an international Bolshevik resolution, Mao's uh, Asian model, uh, Pan-Arabism, Ba'athism was another one. And the French said they were going to sweep all of Europe into a uh, French revolutionary commune. And whereas the United States was always that we have a particular problem in the United States and we're going to solve that. And within our borders, we're going to not, we're going to not presume that we can go out and slay dragons. That was sort of the idea of America. And we're going to if we give people le uh, freedom and liberty, then we have confidence in human nature that we have non-governmental uh, agencies, operations, traditions that will inculcate virtue. And the person who makes money, rather than take it from him or, or define how much he can make with deleterious consequences on the economy when you do that, is that we can encourage him and... Uh, persuade him to give back. And that was a pretty good model. American universities were all a product of that. And we have the largest private philanthropy in the world. Europe doesn't have anything comparable to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, uh, Stanford, Caltech, Duke, uh, these private un endowed universities. But when you get into this revolutionary year one mode where you're going to be holistic and systematic and we're all going to wear Mao suits, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. That's what we are in the United States. These people want to tear down and replace all of our statuary. They want to replace the very date when the United States was founded from 1776 to 1619. And that way, it's, it's almost uncanny how close it is to the year zero 
movement in the French Revolution. And they had a cult of the supreme being. Black Lives Matter is almost a deity now. And I, I'm, again, I'm not exaggerating. We had the chief CEO of Chick-fil-A who said that it was time for everybody to take a knee and wash the feet of African-Americans. And then he got down on his knees and he shined the sneakers of an African-American raptor. And we have uh, in the uh, colonnade of the U.S. Capitol, Nancy Pelosi puts on a kente cloth, supposedly symbolizing, you know, the aristocracy of Africa and the pre-colonial past, then taking a knee. And it's almost a religious experience. And it, it is, it is, um, it's very scary. And w this will be a test of the American traditions and resiliency and the constitutional forethought of our founders, because we've, we've had a civil war before. And anytime when these ideological differences polarize or crystallize around geography, it gets very dangerous. We saw that in 1861, but what we're happening now in the United States, and I think it's maybe somewhat similar to you in Australia, but we have two cultures that were beneficiaries of globalism, from uh, Boston to Washington, and from Seattle to San Diego, and then maybe a little blue spot around the Great Lakes or Atlanta, but that culture is antithetical to the other culture. Yep. I can tell you at Stanford, all my colleagues have never been to Bakersfield or Fresno, but they've been to Shanghai and Tokyo. And when I go to the East Coast, they've all been to London and Paris, but they've never been to Youngstown, Ohio. Yeah. And they don't care. We have two different cultures, and they're they're very angry at each other. And uh, one was a loser of globalization, and one was a winner. And uh, a lot of what we're talking about, I I, I think, was... Nobody thought Donald Trump was going to win. It was supposed to be a 16-year regnum of Obama and Hillary. And then when he won, they thought he really didn't think he would win. And he really wouldn't go through with these policies of energy development, questioning optional wars in the Middle East, getting tough with China, bringing industry back, a populist, nationalist, middle class. And it wasn't just that they were opposed to it. They were Democratic Party was very scared. This was the first time a... Republican elite had actually talked about jobs and had a following among lower middle class people that might even, as it seemed, to transcend race. If we had this conversation in January of this year, we would probably be talking about a sure Trump win and how he was able to create a class coalition that transcended race. It was, and I think there's no surprise that the reaction to this contagion and the lockdown have been have been aimed at that, at stopping that effort or, or canceling it. Uh, let's uh, explore that in a moment. But before we do, can I ask a question? As I look back at, and I don't pretend for a moment to have read much of the Federalist Papers, for example, nonetheless, when you look at the incredible intellectual depth of the and the extent of the thinking and the writing that took place uh, amongst America's founding fathers, they were profoundly influenced by what might be called a a Christian worldview of individuals, uh, the, the Solzhenitsyn idea, the dividing line between good and evil is not, in fact, between man and woman or black and white, captor and captive. It lies somewhere across every human heart. So the great uh, experiment was to maximise freedom but underpinned by a deep awareness that excess power, excess influence, excess money would go to people's heads because we're fallible, Pride would undermine everything. 
that's all washed out of the system now, hasn't it? As you said, it's almost a David Hart, a good Hart idea from Brexit uh, with the somewheres and the anywheres, those who still have some attachment to traditional values, worldview, their own community, uh, to their, uh, their faith versus those who have become international citizens and, and have frankly uh, become quite contemptuous of people who hold traditional values. And that seems to me to be the most massive shift in America, and yet you still have the impression, you've alluded to it, that in middle America, in a geographical sense, there, there may still be some residual strength, some understanding, some, for want of a better word, some good old-fashioned horse sense and realism. Yes. I think that's a very good point. The totality of the Federalist Papers, when you look at what uh, especially... Hamilton was writing about was, and Jefferson in his own way, there was a great distrust of cities. Jefferson said, when we all are piled up in cities, we're going to lose this country. And when we look at writings like John de Crevecourt, Letters from American Farmers, or even later by to what Tocqueville saw, Tocqueville saw democracy in America is founded on the agrarian and the person who was not uh, subject to popular fad and camp independent guy on his farm and that was the that was sort of the essence of the american uh experiment and that that you know that transcended into the industrial revolution when we had auto workers and small tract homes and independent families in these suburbs all throughout the middle west and they saw that and the institutionally this country has some very weird quirks. I don't think you have them or Europe has them. The Electoral College was designed so that we wouldn't have a national referendum where people would just visit the Bay Area or LA or in the past, just the cities. And we had we have two senators in every state. But Wyoming only has 400,000, 450,000 people. One senator is is worth 250, 220. Here in California, my vote, I have 20 million per senator. And that was by intent to balance the popular demagoguery or the, the, the danger of that. And we could go on and on. But within our Constitution, there is a characteristic balance and check, balance and check between the three branches of government and within the states, a federal system that is not radically democratic. They, they opted for the Roman Republic and not the Athenian democratic model, which they were terrified about. And so what's scary now is that when you distill the Black Lives Antifa progressive agenda and you look at what the elites are saying at the universities, they have an agenda and it's anti-founder. In other words, they want to seriously, within four years, repeal the Electoral College. They want to make senators popularly elected. They want to expand the number in the House of Representatives. They want to increase the Supreme Court from 9 to 12 or 16. And the locus classicus of all of that is we've got to give more people uh, direct power without constitutional checks and balances. And they want people, I, I guess I'll just finish here by saying they don't see anything unique about a citizen. A citizen to them is a resident. Person comes across the border illegally, he's a resident. He pays his payroll taxes. He's just as American and he should vote. He should have all the constitutional protections of a citizen. And that's what they're encouraging. It's, it's, 
it's, I, I've used that word too much, but it's insidious. It, it's every aspect. This revolution is 360 degrees, 24 mm-hmm. seven. It's, it's a lidless eye and never sleeps. So Victor, then to come to the next few months, as you've said, the next hundred days will be uh, of breathtaking uh, uh, significance uh, for, for America and for the world, quite frankly. Um, I think you wrote that uh, it was almost, uh, the, the surprise was not that Trump won, it was that it took so long for something like that to happen. Well, I suppose another way of putting that is to say Trump's not the problem, Trump was the, re- the, the product of the problem. Uh, and uh, you know, that I think you also described him uniquely as perhaps chemotherapy. Uh, you know, the patient was in such a bad way, we had to take on something very tough and unusual that we knew might be unpleasant. How do you, how do you see it now? As, as, as you sit there? I see it the same, pretty much the same way. I've used the tragic hero from Sophocles tragedy analogy or the great Western of John Wayne and the Searchers or Shane or High Noon. That he's a person without military or political experience. He's uncouth. He can be very crude. And his, he came in with a certain set of skills or no investment in the bipartisan establishment and therefore no worry about what they thought of him. And he wanted to get an agenda, and yet he's now learning that even before these cri- these three crises, that the more he was succeeding, the more people hated him. And the people I've talked to around him, and I've talked to him too, and it seems that he, I think he has to be aware that when this is all over, people are not going to like him. And they're never going to like him. And he's never going, he's going to be a gunfire that people say, you used a gun to clean up the town, now will you leave? And that's the dilemma of where he is. But he can do some, he can do a lot of good still, and he's done a lot of good. And if we had not had that type of person at this late date, I don't know what we would have done. And what it means in foreign policy is that he would, He's talked a lot. If you if you distill what he's saying, is that he does he's very skeptical of Europe. He's almost suicidally pro-Australian, pro-British. Uh, he wants to be pro-Canadian, and he really believes that the Anglo-speaking world and the traditions of England, especially that we all share, are unique. And neat. and yet to say that in this climate is suicidal because it is. Uh, demagogue as being racist. But it's not. He's trying to say that all of us of every race have a lot to learn from the British system. And and so I can and he's very pro-Japanese. He's I guess what he's sort of like uh, it reminds me of the uh a phrase that Sulla bar Sulla was not a good guy in Roman Republican history, but he said no better friend, no worse enemy. If he thinks you're a friend of the United States, I think that there's no better president to come to your aid. If he feels that, I think, and I'll be candid, I think he feels for a variety of historical and contemporary reasons that Germany is now not an ally of the United States. It is a de, a de jure uh, ally, but it's not. And so I feel that that relationship on both sides is is seriously in jeopardy, and I mean permanently, unless something's done. And I, I, that's tragic, but he feels that, and and yet I feel that his relationships with our traditional allies, Britain especially, but Australia especially. And he wants to be that way with Canada and Japan and South Korea have never been, Taiwan have never, and Israel have never been better. And I think when you go to these countries, a lot of the times people recognize that, at least privately. But 
you know, when the left can, the left has a minority of the of the demography still, but it controls the foundations. It controls yeah. the media, the universities, yeah. the popular culture, Hollywood. So it magnifies its importance. It's got a much bigger megaphone. That's certainly true in Australia. Uh, around a third of Australians now self-identify as left-wing, and that's up considerably on what it used to be. But it means that two-thirds do not. Yet virtually all of the public commentary, the people with the megaphones, come from that particular perspective and have a great deal of say. Um, the future of, um, uh, just to, on this issue of um, American attitudes towards tr uh, Trump, I recently met an American from the East Coast and she started to almost froth at the mouth at the mere mention of Trump's name and listed an unbelievable set of uh, real and imagined uh, ills. She said to me then, how do you feel about him as an Australian? And I said, well, one thing I will say is that he had the courage to call out the Chinese. We're much closer to China than you. And Obama did nothing about the militarization of the islands uh, that are not in Chinese uh, territory. Uh, and at that point, she immediately backed off and it was quite interesting and said, yes, I will give you that. I thought it was a very interesting remark or insight. The left is in a dilemma because some of them had been solitary voices complaining about human rights, Hong Kong, Tibet, Weggert. And Obama was not interested in that at all. His Asian pivot was not anti-China, it was pro-China. And Trump come, came along and he empowered those people. So it's very funny to see people who are now coming out of the woodwork on the left, and they all have to throat clear before they make their statements. And they say, well, you know, I hate Donald Trump, and he's no good, just what you're talking about. But he allowed us to speak about Chinese human rights violations. And so that, that is, that's something uh, that's important. But what, what you're also describing is in the United States, a lot of us, I know that I've had a lot of friends and family that don't speak to him anymore because I wrote a book on how Trump won. And they have created a climate that it's not socially done. If I were to put on a MAGA hat, make America great, and put an American sticker in my car and drive to town, I'd be in trouble. That being said, some of the people who shout at me might, in fact, when they get into the ballot box, vote for Trump. And I think that's the big unknown, how many of them in the fall. Uh, I talked to a, a person yesterday, Mexican-American fellow, uh, law enforcement. And I said, so who are you voting for? Trump. I said, well, have you, have you ever been contacted? He said, yes. I said, who do you say you're voting for? He said, Biden. And I said, why? He said, because if I text, if they text me a, a question, I'm going to be on some list. Yeah. And I'm gonna do, they're going to go after me. And that's not that's not crazy anymore in this climate. So it's there are little telltale signs. We had a congressional ele special election for somebody who was removed from Congress in a plus 12 Democratic seat about two months ago. And we had a conservative Mexican-American candidate was down in the polls, supposedly by eight points, and he won by 10. So. It actually happened here last year with the re-election of Scott Morrison. As Prime Minister, he was given no chance. Uh, the polls all got it wrong. Uh, even the US Study Centre, no one there 
uh, seem to uh, call it right uh, in relation to Trump. And you've got this quite distinct reality now that a lot of people simply won't tell you what they really think. That in itself is profoundly troubling. We now feel obliged not only to hide what we really think, but to deny it in public. And so my final question, you've been very generous with your time. A decent middle American worried about their country just wanting a return to some degree of civility. What advice would you have for them? Because the same will apply in my country. Well, I think, and this is kind of contrarian or counterfactual, or I don't think that appeasement and, and uh, abasement work anymore. In other words, uh, I think people like yourself who said to the American, well, he's been pretty good on China. We need to be a little bit more assertive and we, we need to have people in middle America that say, you know what, I'm not going to defund the police. I'm sorry, I'm just not going to do it. And you know what, I'm not going to allow you to tear down Father Unipio Serra's statue. And if they stand up, they don't need to do it acrimoniously or rudely, but they have to be much more forceful because you mentioned these revolutions. They all had one thing in common. They started out with a minority of the population. The uh, Jacobins were a minority. The Bolsheviks were a minority. The Maoists were a minority. And everybody said they're going to devour their own. And they did. And they're, and they're going to dilute their message. And they did. And they're going to be suicidal. And they were. But they won, at least for a time, because nobody spoke out against them, either in fear or because they thought they had no chance. And we're going to wait and see what happens in November to finish. And there's three or four things that we don't know what's going to happen. Either the, the virus is going to wane. If it wanes by November, Trump will be elected. If the lockdown stops and the economy starts to show real signs of recovery, he'll win. If Joe Biden gets out on the, the trail and he seems to be cognitively this, you know, impaired in some degree, Trump will win. And if uh, if Trump has a, a greater degree of discipline in, in his expressions, he'll win. If that does not happen, he'll lose. And so it's a, it, we're all waiting to see which of those four or five factors will play out and how they will play out, but they're on everybody's mind and they govern every, every policy decision, every editorial uh, interpretation of them. We, we just, unfortunately, Everything is weaponized in this country. I've never seen anything like it. And I grew up in the 60s. And it was not, even that was not like this. It's scary. But civilization, I really believe, is, in, is on the brink because if these forces come to full power, um, they're going to be taking names and they're going to, they're not going to want um, a, a union of thought. They're not going to want, uh, they're not going to be gracious about their victory. They're not going to want unity and healing. They're going to hunt out and eradicate their opponents. That's what cultural revolutions always do, and they'll do it again. Well, on that very sobering note, but very, very important note, uh, can I thank you very much indeed for your time. I've enjoyed it immensely, and I appreciate your very deep learning and understanding. It's been terrific. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Enjoyed it. You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.